But if you turn in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 26, uh, this evening we're going to be in verses 1 down to verse 14 of that chapter. Matthew 26, 1 to 14. When our children were small, uh, one of the stories that they loved was Guess How Much I Love You by Sam McBratney. Uh, The story is of two hares, big nut brown hair and little nut brown hair. And little nut brown hair asks the question, Guess How Much I Love You? And then proceeds to show big nut brown hair how much by using his body to quantify how much. So he would stretch out his arms really wide, or he'd reach really high, he'd jump, and so on. But he realizes that he can never outdo big nut brown hair, because big nut brown hair is, well, bigger. And so when he uses his body to quantify it, his love is always more. In our passage today, there is a woman who shows Jesus and the watching disciples how much she loves Jesus. But in showing him this, she also shows that she understands how much Jesus loves her. And of course, Jesus' love is always going to be more. We come this evening to a new section of the Gospel of Matthew. And we know it's a new section because if you notice in verse 1, we read the phrase, when Jesus had finished saying all these things. Now Matthew breaks his gospel up into five distinct sections where we see narrative, that is, accounts of what Jesus did, followed by big chunks of teaching which explain the narrative that's just happened. And Matthew breaks off a teaching section and moves on to a new section of narrative with the phrase that's very similar to what we have been reading here. So uh, five times, or this is the fifth time, uh, we uh, have read in the Gospel of Matthew. So after the Sermon on the Mount, we read, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Uh, After teaching about the mission of the disciples in chapter 10, we read, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Now, after the parables of Matthew 13, we read, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. And then after Matthew 18, again, after more parables, we read, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. So I hope you can see that there is a distinct pattern to what Matthew is doing as he shows us that Jesus is the king who has come to save his people from their sins. And so we leave behind us in Matthew's gospel teaching about the second coming to come to the main purpose of his first coming, his death for our sins. And chapters 26 and 27 give us Matthew's account of how Jesus died on the cross. And the build-up to this begins tonight with Passover plots and perfume. As we read this account, we see how much a woman loves Jesus. But equally, there is another side to this narrative, which could be described as 
guess how much I hate you, which is what we see from other characters who are involved in the death of Jesus. So let's read together Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 14. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve the one called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is God's word. So what we're going to, to see as we go through this is the love and the hatred involved in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this, first of all, in the resolve for the death of Jesus. In the accounts of the death of Jesus, in all the Gospels, we, and we see it particularly here, there are two perspectives on the reasons for his death. There is the resolve of Jesus, and there is the resolve of Jesus' enemies. And we see, first of all, the resolve of Jesus. Look again at verse 2. As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So Jesus tells his disciples two things he says they know. First of all, they would know that Passover is two days away. They would know this because it was the biggest festival in the Jewish calendar. It was like uh, me saying to you on December the 23rd, Christmas is two days away. You know that. But the reason this is so important is because the second part of what the disciples know, that the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus had told the disciples over and over again that he will be crucified. They know this. This shouldn't be a surprise to them. But what is important is to notice two things. The first is that Jesus is going to die at Passover. Now we'll see this more uh, next week as we come to see Jesus celebrate the Passover. 
But there is, in Matthew's Gospel, in this whole section about the death of Jesus, a Passover motif. The Passover uh, is overshadowing all of this. And the Passover was a time when lambs were sacrificed to remember the sacrifice of a lamb, the blood of which was put on the doorpost of the Israelites in Egypt, where they were slaves, so that the angel of death that was coming to uh, kill the firstborn child of every household would pass over the homes where the blood of the lamb was on the doorposts. And this resulted in freedom from slavery and the subsequent move to the land of promise. And every year, the Israelites commemorated this with the Passover festival. And it is not a coincidence that Jesus is going to die at the time that the sacrificial lambs are killed. He is the lamb that is going to be sacrificed to free his people from slavery to sin. And that Passover motif runs all the way through uh, this account of the death of Jesus. And again, we'll see it more next week, but it's important to take note of that because Jesus is in control of the timing of his death. He's in control. As we go through this chapter, we'll see again and again that the death of Jesus was in the control of Jesus. He was resolved to die and was in control of the events. The, the death of Jesus, which we'll read about in the coming weeks, was not an accident. It was not only because of the plots of the religious leaders, the betrayal of Judas, the cowardice of Pilate. All those things, of course, played a part, but the ultimate control of the death of Jesus was in the hands of Jesus himself. And the Bible teaches us that he purposefully resolved to die to save us from our sins. He is the Passover lamb. That is how much he loves us. So in those first couple of verses, we see the resolve of Jesus to die for our sins at the Passover. However, at the same time, we see the resolve of Jesus' enemies. In verse 3, we see that the chief priests and the elders of the people meet up in the palace of Caiaphas. Now, when we read uh, palace, uh, we might be thinking something like, our, what, like Buckingham Palace, where the royal family might stay. Uh, and whilst it was an important place, it wasn't quite like a palace like we might be thinking. It was just an important house. It was, it was the place of residence for the religious leader of the people, who was Caiaphas. It was more like 10 Downing Street than Buckingham Palace, the resident of the religious leader. Now, we've not been introduced to Caiaphas before. Uh, he was a successful political religious leader. He remained in power longer than any of the high priests during the Roman era. He was good at keeping his position, and he was good at getting rid of threats, of which Jesus was obviously one. Uh, Jesus, you uh, know from looking at Matthew's gospel, had drawn crowds to him, especially as he comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, proclaiming himself really to be king in what he is doing. And he annihilated the religious leaders as they debated him in response to his claims. 
And now their desire to get rid of Jesus, who was in their eyes a threat to them, reaches its climax as they meet at the religious leader's house to plot. At this stage, we don't know what their plot is. In fact, they probably don't know exactly what the plot is. They've not yet at this point been approached by Judas, who will give them a plot. But notice in verse 5, their motivation is all about their position and reputation and power. In verse 5, we read that they, they don't want to kill Jesus during the festival because there may be a riot among the people. And if there was a riot among the people, it would show that the people were upset with the religious leaders, but also the Roman leaders who allowed those religious leaders to have their position would also be upset with the religious leaders. And so they did not want to kill Jesus during the Passover festival because they were scared of his popularity and what it would do to their reputation. But notice even here how much God is in control. The meeting at Caiaphas' palace resolved not to arrest Jesus during the Passover. But Jesus said, I will die during the Passover. Two opposite plans. And Jesus' plan is the one that is followed through on. He is in control even of the evil plans of his enemies. And today we see the same kind of thing going on. We see hatred towards Jesus and his followers with plots and schemes to eliminate them. Sometimes this is outright persecution and and sometimes we have enemies that try to undermine our message, uh, make us look out of date, damage our reputation. Uh, Sometimes... Uh, We even see people who claim to be God's people doing despicable things in the name of God, which is evil. But never forget, Jesus is the one in complete control and is working even in the midst of evil plans to bring about his purposes. And his purposes in this instance is a resolve to die so he could be the one who saves us from our sins. What amazing love that he has for us, that he would do that for us. If only we would see how much God loves us, it would help us to respond in the right way. And that is what happens in this uh, small incident Small as in in the amount of words it takes up in our Bibles, not small in and of itself, that we see in verses 6 to 13. Here we see the right response to the death of Jesus. We move from the palace of Caiaphas to the house of Simon the leper. And I think there is a contrast here that we are supposed to see. In the palace of Caiaphas, The religious leaders would have thought that they were in a clean place and there they plotted evil. And Jesus is in what would have been seen as an unclean place, preparing to do the greatest good that has ever been done in dying for our sins. Now Simon would have been known as a leper, 
but he would not have been with leprosy at this particular point, otherwise he wouldn't have been able to have guests in his house. But that was his reputation. And at this house, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, perfume is one of those items that you can buy today that can be really expensive still. You can get bottles for over £2,000 in some places, and probably even more if you know where to look. To be frank, I'd rather have BO than spend that much on perfume. I don't understand why you would, but there you go. You can buy perfume for thousands of pounds. And throughout history, perfume has been used for two main purposes. The first, uh, like today, is, is used to make someone smell nice covering body odor. Most of us who wear perfume or aftershave or deodorant uh, use it to hide our smells, don't we? But the second reason perfume was used was to prepare someone for burial. Uh, this was with the intention of preventing decomposition or at least hiding the smells of decomposition from the body before it is buried. And families would save their money to have perfume for this purpose so that when someone died, they would have what was needed to hide the bad odor of death. And they would want to have as good a perfume as the family could afford. The quality of the smell of that perfume would be a matter of family pride. And the perfume was precious and it was only used at the time of a family member's death. And notice that this woman had this perfume in an alabaster jar. The jar would not have had a screw-top lid or a spray button. In order to get at this perfume, you would have to smash the jar, and that meant you could only use the perfume once. And that was the purpose. It was to be used on the occasion where someone died. People only die once, and so the perfume would only be used once. And this woman pours this, her expensive family perfume, on Jesus' head as he reclines at the table. This was an in incredibly extravagant and costly act of devotion. Why does she do it? Well, the disciples don't get why, do they? Look at their reaction in verses 8 and 9. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Indignant means that they were really angry. They thought that it was a complete waste. The smell that this perfume would give off would be a smell that reminded people of death. It was used for the dead, and Jesus is very much alive. What is the point in the disciples' minds of wasting this perfume on someone that hasn't even died? I mean, they thought, well, if you, if you don't want the perfume, then give it to us, and, and we'll sell the money. Don't just waste it by pouring it on the head of someone that's not even dead. I mean, if, if, if Jesus was dead, then fair enough. But he's not. Well, they thought the money could be made from selling the perfume and then they could, 
they could give the, the, the money to the poor. Well, perhaps that's a, a good motive. Uh, giving money to the poor is a, a good thing. But perhaps their motive was not quite as, as good as it perhaps looks. In John's account, we at least read that Judas Iscariot did not have a good motive. He led the indignation. John highlights Judas's motive. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas's motive certainly wasn't good, even if the other disciples did have a good motive. Another bad motive might have been that they thought this act of devotion made them look bad. They hadn't done something like this. But whatever their motive was, good or bad, they really missed the point completely. And Jesus spells it out to them in verses 10 to 12. Jesus asked them why they are bothering her. He says that she's done something beautiful for him. There's plenty of time, Jesus says, for you to help the poor. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 11 to say that the poor will always be with them. You can help the poor at any time. Now, Jesus is not saying here that helping the poor is unimportant. All through the scriptures, we read about how important giving to the poor is to God. In fact, in those verses, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 15. The context is that because the poor are always with you, you should be generous and open-handed towards them. In the verses we looked at last week, you may remember Jesus saying that helping those of his people who are in need is helping Jesus himself. So this is not Jesus downgrading helping the poor, but it is pointing out the uniqueness of this situation in history. Jesus is about to die, and we know that he will rise and go to heaven. He's not going to be with them much longer. The uniqueness of this situation is actually spelt out in verse 12. The woman was not wasting the perfume. She was preparing Jesus for burial. As I mentioned before, perfume was used for the burial of the dead. But Jesus wasn't dead. The people would never have perfumed a body before that body had died. What is going on is this. The woman is ministering to Jesus as if he is dead. And Jesus allows this and affirms this. What's going on is this. She understands that Jesus is going to die. And she understands that his death calls for complete devotion. She understands that Jesus is going to die and understands that his death calls for our complete devotion. Now the disciples, they understand this in retrospect. As you read the New Testament, the disciples are completely devoted to Jesus after he died and rose again. They wrote the Gospels. You see them in the Acts of the Apostles, giving themselves to Jesus. Almost all of them were martyred. 
We read in the epistles that the apostles wrote about how we are to give ourselves fully to to loving Jesus. But this woman understands not in retrospect, she understands it before it happens. She understands that Jesus is going to die and his death calls for everything we have in devotion to him. Jesus told his disciples in verse 2 he was going to die. Passover is coming, the time is at hand. The woman sees what Jesus is about to do and she gets it and she wants to serve him in this way. Jesus is about to die as as a criminal and criminals do not get anointed with perfume after they die. She is giving Jesus an act of kindness that costs her dearly. And Jesus appreciates her act. He says in verse 13 that what she has done will be spoken of wherever the gospel is preached. And her act act here is certainly recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John's gospels. Whenever the Bible is translated into other languages, this act is translated into other languages so people all over the world can read and hear of what this woman did for Jesus. That she got his death. That she gave the most precious thing she had to serve him. Her act is not forgotten, is it? It is proclaimed all over the world for all of time. But we truly honor what she did when we see Jesus as she saw him, when we recognize that his death demands our full devotion. Well, I think there's a number of lessons for us to apply in the light of this episode. First of all, Jesus shows how much he loves us. And whilst our love will never match his, we show our devotion to him in our acts of service in his name. The devotion of this woman in in giving this precious perfume, which would have been expensive and of great sentimental value, is an example to us. Secondly, we learn that our acts of service for Jesus are never wasted. There will be many who, like the disciples, when we do radical acts for Jesus, will tell us that we're wasting our lives and we're wasting our resources. People think we're crazy and stupid. Jesus disagrees. This is not a waste. Our acts of service for him are beautiful things. And linked to that, whilst our acts for him are not wasted, neither are they forgotten. They're not forgotten by Jesus. Now our acts aren't going to be written in the word of God that is already written. They're not going to be read all over the world, but they are read in heaven, where God is. He notices, he remembers every act of service that we do for him. And finally, I think we should learn the lesson of of not jumping to criticism when we see acts of devotion by others. Oftentimes, when we see people really going for it for Christ really pouring themselves out for Jesus. Our feelings, perhaps, of a lack of devotion in ourselves can cause us to be critical 
can cause us to look for faults and ascribe false motives to them. Rather, let us thank God for people's service and aim to be devoted to Jesus ourselves. Well, this act of devotion by this woman is sandwiched in between two despicable acts in the plot to have Jesus killed. And in the final two verses of our passage tonight, we see the riches from the death of Jesus. Here we come to the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. Or the betrayal of Jesus, rather, by Judas Iscariot. We see in verse 14, uh, really the shock behind this betrayal. Notice how Matthew points out that Judas was one of the twelve. That phrase, one of the twelve, is repeated often by Matthew and the other um, uh, writers of the Gospels. Um, It was a shock that one of the closest companions of Jesus was the one who betrayed him. And Matthew links Judas with this betrayal all through the gospel. Every time his name is mentioned, he's the Judas, the one who betrayed him. Judas, one of the twelve. It was a despicable act that was just shocking. But why does Judas do this? Well, we're not told the reason explicitly, but we are given some clues. We saw earlier in John's gospel that, that Judas was the leader who led the indignation at this woman for pouring the perfume on Jesus' head. And even Matthew links it to that previous episode by using the word then at the beginning of verse 14. So it seems that this woman poured the the perfume on Jesus' head and then at that point, it was like that was the final straw, Judas goes to the religious leaders. That perfume could have been sold for money, not to be given for the poor, but for Judas to pilfer for himself. And we see Judas go to the chief priests, who he would know were plotting against Jesus, and he asks them, notice there in verse 15, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So so he wants money. And it seems as though money was at least in part a motivation behind him betraying Jesus. It might be that he realized he couldn't get much money from working with Jesus, Or that he was disillusioned with Jesus for not using the obvious gifts that he did have. I mean, he could multiply bread and fish. He could control weather and all these other things. He could raise the dead. Surely he could use these these amazing gifts he had for profit. But we see another contrast here, though. And I think this is what Matthew is, 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 is drawing out. The woman is devoted to Jesus giving her expensive perfume to him, showing generosity. And Judas goes to to Jesus' enemies and asks, what are you willing to give me? The woman was about, what can I give you, Jesus? Judas was about, what can you give me? And what he did get was not very much. The riches in inverted commas, were 30 pieces of silver. Now this is not a lot of money. It's a a tiny amount really. In the Old Testament, it was the amount that you would pay the owner of a slave 
as compensation if your bull had injured or killed them. Now, um, I'm not saying uh, people who were slaves were, were, were not um, human or worth very much, but in the law of the, the time, it, it was compensation for a slave. It wasn't a lot of money. As I was studying this, I was trying to find something that would say that 30 pieces of silver was actually quite a sum. Maybe I was misreading it. I mean, why would you betray Jesus for, for such a paltry amount? But it really was pathetic. It's like a child asking, as uh, they so often do, how much would you give me if I do such and such? Now, when we were children, we would, would do that kind of thing. I had one particular friend. As we used to uh, play a lot of football, and we'd hang out in fields. And I had a friend who would always be picking up the grass and putting it in his mouth and eating it. And one time, uh, I said to him, would you, would you reckon you could eat, eat grass for a week? Nothing but grass. And he said, well, how much would you give me for just, just to eat grass for a week? And I said, I'll give you 50p if you eat grass for a week. Now, back in those days, 50p was worth, well, about the same as 50p today, really. It might get you a bigger chocolate bar, but that's only because the chocolate bars were bigger a few years ago. It wasn't very much. It was a pathetic amount of money. Now, the end of that story was he didn't really make it to the end of the day because for some reason his mother would not allow him just to eat grass from their garden for a week. But isn't it true when we see scandals of bribery and so on that the price is always really low in, com in comparison to the consequences of that scandal when it blows up? To betray Jesus for this paltry amount just shows how much he was disillusioned with and hated Jesus. He was pathetic. A pathetic and paltry amount of money. And so Judas, in verse 16, looks for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. The religious leaders would only know the public places Jesus went. And they wouldn't necessarily recognize him in the dark. Uh, today, um, we, we have a, a celebrity culture where people's pictures are all over the place, and we would know if we were walking past a particular celebrity in the street. But in these days, many people wouldn't have known what Jesus looked like, even if they'd have heard of him. More people would have heard about him than had seen him. And so Judas, one of the, the twelve, could take them to the right place at the right time, to point him out so he could be arrested. It's amazing that Judas would do this. Judas looked the part. Judas had been with Jesus for three years. He'd, he'd heard Jesus' teaching. He'd seen the miracles. Ju Judas even went on mission for Jesus to preach the gospel. And yet here he is. Betraying Jesus to his enemies. How could it come to this? Well, loving money or being devoted to anything above and beyond Jesus is a slippery slope that leads away from him. But actually, that paltry amount of 30 pieces of silver... We might think, how ridiculous. 
But in comparison to the riches that Jesus offers us, in comparison to Jesus, anything is paltry. Judas was offered 30 pieces of silver. What's your price for rejecting Jesus? It might, like Judas, be loving money. It might be the approval of others or the fear of others. It might be that you want to be in complete control of every aspect of your life. Whatever it is, in comparison to the riches we are offered in following Christ, it is a paltry and pathetic amount. Because actually, in this passage, the richest person, apart from Jesus who is God, was the woman who gave her riches to Jesus. Because it is in our devotion to Jesus and because of his death that we find the true riches that are found in his kingdom. The true riches of eternal life. And those are given through the poverty of Jesus and his, his, his death where he was stripped to nothing and is shown in this, this devotion of this woman who gives everything. Don't sell the immeasurable and priceless gift of God for the false and pathetic riches of this world. As we close, let me ask you, where where are you in this passage? Are you the, the plotters who long to be rid of Jesus? You want nothing to do with him. You want him out of your life and want want your own power, your own position, your own reputation to be elevated. Are you like Judas in that your love for money or something else pushes you away from him? Or are you like this woman who recognizes what Jesus has done for her and gives the best that she has to serve him? The book, uh, Guess How Much I Love You, I think can be quite a sad title because we shouldn't have to guess, should we? But God doesn't leave us guessing. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And may our love for him be obvious too. Let's not keep the world guessing. Let's pour ourselves out in devotion to Jesus. Our final song speaks of the love of Christ and our response to it. The song is, Here is Love.
This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Amen.